Let me encourage you as I begin to pray that if you hear a particular phrase or a particular theme that resonates with you and you would like to lift that up to the Lord in your own heart and in your own mind, say, yes, Lord, and be a part of this prayer time in that way. Let's join our hearts and our minds, and let's talk to the Lord. Father, you have created an absolutely beautiful country and world. Nature displays magnificent sights. You, dear God, have created a people who are talented and oftentimes gifted. And you give us the opportunity to share those talents and gifts. You're a God who has a plan for your creation. You love us and you care about what you created and you're involved with us. Not just a little, not just occasionally, but moment by moment. You influence our lives and the lives of those around us. Very often, Lord, we don't know that you're there or even that you're at work in a particular situation, but you are. And you take the difficult things in our life and give meaning to them and use them in a positive way so that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And you take the joyful things, Lord, and you give us reason to turn and even give you thanks over and again as you bring joy to our hearts. And you promise us, Father, that through your Son, Jesus, this isn't going to be the end. It's only the beginning. For when we come to reside with you through the power that you will exercise in us by raising us from the dead and by having us live with you forever, that joy will be made complete. What a wonderful God. Wonder why it is, Lord, With all the blessings and with all the things that you do in our life, all the opportunities you give us, all the grace and mercy that you have shown us, the love that is so compelling, wonder why it is, Lord, we don't do those things ourselves. Father, I ask you to forgive us as we come under individual conviction that we're not all you want us to be. That oftentimes, spiritually, we stall out and we just stop and kind of spin our wheels. Other times, Lord, we'll grow for a while and get discouraged and not grow at all for a while. And sometimes, Lord, we just check out. We go do our own thing. And for a while, you tolerate that. 
And then we see some negative results from trying to take control of our own life. And your Holy Spirit starts to move and you get our attention again and you call us to repentance and to a new surrendering. I pray that for us this morning, Lord, from this pulpit to every person sitting here, that all of us would have a new start today. And that we would have a passion in our heart to be closer to you. That our relationship with you might be more intimate and more compelling. And I know, dear God, that's your desire for us. Hear us as we ask for forgiveness. And as we commit ourselves to living for you. Father, we look around at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this country and in this world, and some of your churches are doing a really good job. And some of them, dear God, aren't doing a good job at all. Some of them have gotten off focus. Some of your ministers and some of your lay leaders and some of your congregations have become self-absorbed in things other than the gospel. I pray this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would reach into the pulpits and into the pews across this country and that a revival might take place. And there might be a new surrendering to you as the Lord of our lives. I pray, dear God, for that same kind of change to take place throughout our country with those who are not a part of your church. I pray that you'd call people to yourself with that irresistible kind of grace that causes a person to step from darkness into the light, that causes a person to have a change of heart and a change of mind. We pray that, dear God, for those who walk our streets with no homes, to the suburbs, and to the most powerful people in this country. And we pray for that renewal. Father, I think about our chaplains in the military service and the kind of struggles they're going through to be faithful to the gospel today when in so many cases they're being told not to do that. And I pray, dear God, that you would help them. I pray that you'd help them to do the very thing you've called them to do and that so many of them desire with all of their heart to do. And I pray you would use them. I pray for those who are in military uniforms and police uniforms and nurses' uniforms. I pray, dear God, for those who are giving their lives away to help other people and pray your blessing on them. Father, we as a people need your blessing. As Paul says in his day and is equally true today, we live in a perverse generation among people who have turned from you. Turn us back, I pray, dear God. Father, I thank you for our church. I thank you for the many ministries that you put on our heart. I thank you for the way folks are working together and how your Holy Spirit more and more is having his way with us. 
I pray as we approach the whole topic of electing a pulpit committee, and I pray, dear God, that you would be the one to choose those people who would be on that committee. And I pray somewhere right at this very moment that your Holy Spirit is working with the man who will be the next permanent pastor at our church. All of that, we happily surrender to you as we do our very lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me as we continue our study in Philippians. We're going to be in the third chapter this morning, and we're going to begin with the 13th verse. Philippians, the third chapter, beginning with the 13th verse, and we're going to study through the 21st. Once you have found your place, please look up. Philippians 3, beginning with verse 13. Just put your finger in your Bible and smile. Let's pray together. Father, never let us do this by ourselves, please. You have bestowed your Holy Spirit on every one of us that you have called to faith. And there's a power at work in us, Lord, that will open your word up and help us to hear. And I pray, dear God, that you would help us to hear this morning. And I pray that it might enrich our lives. And I pray you draw us closer to you through what we're about to do. And I pray it in the name of the one you sent, your son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Most of us, when we think about the Declaration of Independence, I know you've been thinking about that all morning. We think about July 4th, we think about 1776, we think about some men gathering together from most of the colonies, but not all, and signing a declaration saying that they wanted to be independent from Great Britain. And as you read history, you can just kind of keep flipping and not stop at that point. And you can look at all the positive things that happened in our country. But there's a bit of an interlude right after they signed it. A war started. And Great Britain had absolutely no intention of letting the colonies be independent. Great Britain arguably the largest and strongest army on earth. For sure, the largest and strongest navy on earth. And they came storming into the colonies with their army and their navy, absolutely resolved to stop this little bit of a revolution. They targeted, among other places, New York, a major trade center, a major harbor, a center for a whole lot of the commerce and economy of our colonies. 
and they offloaded soldiers and they started through what we know as Manhattan and what we know as the Bronx. Revolutionary Army, who by God's grace had started to be formed during the French and Indian War because God was bringing about this revolution. So he got the colonies to talking to each other and working together in the French and Indian War so that when this revolution took place, some of that networking was already in place. So pretty quickly, an army was raised. Washington was commissioned to be the head of that army. And they were in Manhattan, and they were in Brooklyn, and they were ready to go to war. Unfortunately, they were facing a superior force, General Howe and his men. Unfortunately, the Royal Navy was in the East River dividing those two forces, the two colonial forces. General Howe moved through Brooklyn. There was a day-long battle. Independence has not yet been won. It's just been declared. In that battle, Washington suffered 700 deaths in his ranks compared to 65 on the British side. An unbelievable difference. Wounded four to one, colonial forces took a beating. And over a thousand soldiers from the colonial army were captured tried for treason, and hung. Serious business, this revolution. History tells us that Washington started retreating. He retreated to the Brooklyn Heights, which is a high area over the East River. General Howe ordered over the next two days after that one-day battle he ordered his forces to do a 180 from the East River around the Brooklyn Heights and back to the East River so there was no retreat. Washington, in one of his communications, expressed how desperate he was. And you can sense, if you read some of those communications, he didn't think there was any hope at all with the river to his back and a superior force in front. As the British formed that semicircle, two days went by. There's one thing going for Washington which was really important. He had a resolve. And his resolve was to press on, even though he'd been defeated. So he looked at his options. He knew if he stayed where he was, his force would be decimated. He knew if he broke out and tried to break through the enemy, the same thing would happen. And he knew if he surrendered, probably they would all be hung. 9,000 people. So you know what he did? He got some rowboats. And on the 29th of August, as the sun went down, 
he very strategically told his troops to pick up all of their military supplies, what little they had, and to get into the rowboats and go across the harbor to Manhattan, which was still relatively secure. All night long, rowboats went over and back, over and back, moving part of that 9,000 men. As the sun started to come up on the 30th, an interesting thing happened. Washington was still in the Brooklyn Heights. He was the last one to lift a boot and get in a boat. He still had men to move. And the British ships were in the East River with sentinels looking, trying to spot people, trying to get across the river. History doesn't say this. It only gives an accounting of what happened. God decided to help them get across that river. As the sun came up, the fog came in. Until the fog was so thick that a sentinel on a ship couldn't see a rowboat in the water. And he moved the balance of his force to Manhattan. And then he got in a boat and went to Manhattan. Still resolved to press on. And it's because of men like Washington that you and I sit here in a free country today. People who knew how to press on when there was adversity. Well, that's who we are. I want you to know that's our heritage. But it didn't start with Washington. Paul talks about it. He talks about the need for us to press on even when there's all kind of adversity. I want to show you that in Scripture. Look with me at the third chapter, beginning with the 13th verse, and I want you to follow along. And folks, listen carefully, for God's about to speak to us. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you again, weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. For by... whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, for which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject 
all things to himself. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you look at verses 13 and 14, you see that theme pressing on. Paul says in 13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. What he's talking about is holiness. What he's talking about is being a born-again Christian who's walking in the Spirit and able to not walk in the flesh. And he's saying, I haven't arrived yet. Now, as we have read about Paul and know Paul, he arrived a whole lot more than most of us. But he says, I still haven't achieved that. I haven't completed this process called sanctification. And you know what the truth is? You and I are in a process that's not complete. You and I, day by day, are being perfected by God. We're being brought along by God. And what God wants for us to do, as he wanted with Paul, is he wants us to press on, and he wants us to not resist his Holy Spirit, not to quench his spirit, not to struggle with his spirit, but to let him influence our daily life to let him renew our minds and warm our hearts and bring us closer and closer day by day. Paul says, I haven't completed that process. I'm still in process, and so are you and so am I. Back in 1858, there was a man named William Broadman. He went to Lane Theological Seminary, which was a Presbyterian seminary in the north. After he graduated, he became a pastor, and after being a pastor, God put his hand on him in a particular way and caused him to have a passion for personal holiness. An irresistible urge to let God take over his life. And God called this man, Broadman, to a ministry of seeking to get believers more excited about surrendering their lives. He called it the higher Christian walk or the higher Christian movement. Some call it the victorious life movement. Some refer to it by its English name, which is Keswick movement. All of them are the same, basically, and what they are is an encouragement to people to become holier. Now, I don't want to talk much about that movement because theologically I'm not completely in agreement. But the foundation that they're operating from and operate from this very day is to encourage people to walk more closely with the Lord. What Broadman did is he started holding conventions. Today we would call them revivals. He went particularly all over Europe holding conventions and bringing not non-Christians, but people just like us together and encouraging people to surrender anew and let God take over and lead their lives on a daily basis. And he had a measurable degree of success. Oh, for that to happen in our country today. For that to happen in our church today starting right up here, for us to have individually a passion, an urge 
to live a holier life, to be surrendered more to God. I said it in my prayer, to have a more intimate relationship with our Creator, where He is absolutely involved in our life because we've said yes to the Holy Spirit. Folks, if we did that, if we had that kind of surrender in our life, our lives would change radically. And what Paul is saying is, I haven't arrived yet, but this is where we're supposed to go. This is what we're supposed to press on for. And he says an interesting thing. He says, and as you do this, as you press toward this holiness, I don't want you to look back. Well, looking back sometimes is helpful because you can learn from the past. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is all of us, when we look back, have times when we have really been discouraged spiritually, when things really haven't worked out and we said, you know, I gave it my very best shot. And we get discouraged and may want to give up that pursuit. I don't know about you, but I think you'll identify with this. Some of the times when I have wanted to do this and have started giving myself anew to the Lord and have put some practices in place to help embrace that and help it happen, and then something's happened and suddenly I look around and say, oh, I'm not closer, I may be farther away. You ever had that happen? And you say, you know, that didn't work out like I planned. And then you go through this kind of lull period, is what I call it, and suddenly you wake up and you say, but I'm here. I have moved on in my relationship. I'm closer to the Lord. And you realize it's not just something that you're doing, it's something he's doing for you. Paul is saying, don't get discouraged. Let me tell you, if you have something you're struggling with in your life, you've got some kind of an addiction, and I want you to know, I have no addictions that are obvious. All of us have things we struggle with. Every one of us. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up because you're not in this struggle by yourself. You belong to God. And God wants to work in you and renew you and grow you up and help you become more like Jesus. Keep your focus and press on. And don't get discouraged. For when you get discouraged, you start treading water spiritually. And you don't go anywhere. And not much good comes out of that. I want you to look down at the 15th and 16th verses. He says, I want you to have the right attitude. I want you to have this attitude among yourselves. And if you look at verse 15, he starts out by saying, Let us therefore... As many as are perfect. Oops. So I guess all of us are disqualified, aren't we? Because there aren't any perfect people that I know of other than Jesus. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about the kind of perfection that is a perfection that grows, that increases. I read from the New American Standard. The New International Version, the English Standard Version, New King James Version all use another word. 
they use the word mature. What Paul is saying is, those of you who are mature, I want you to strive for the right attitude. And you know why attitude is important? Because it often determines where we are, what we think, what we do, how we use our resources. A lot of it's about our attitude. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you, as you're being perfected, as you're maturing, I want you to have the right attitude, and I want you to strive, press on for more holiness. And he openly admits, and I think it's so important, that we're not all at the same maturity level. We're at varying levels. Sometimes we think someone has arrived when really all they have is knowledge. We're talking about being surrendered. We're talking about being open to the Holy Spirit so that he might break new ground for us. And as we mature, we ought to cultivate the attitude that says, I really want to be holier. Can you imagine yourself saying that? I want to be holier. And that's what we're being encouraged to do. I thought of an example from the Old Testament. All of us have read that when the people of Israel crossed the sea, God stopped the waters. We all saw that movie. And after they crossed over, the water collapsed on top of the Egyptian chariots and army. And now they're on the other side, the people of Israel. They're in a desert. If you've ever been there, that is a real desert. It is one hot place. God says to them, and this is what we emphasize from Scripture, he said, I'm going to give you a cloud, and you follow that cloud during the daytime. You remember that? And then he said, and at night, I'm going to give you a column of fire so you can see it, and I want you to follow that. You know what he was saying? I want you to follow me. I want you to go where I want you to go. I want you to do what I want you to do because I love you, and it's in your best interest to do it. I want you to think about the cloud for a minute. These were grumbling, unhappy people. And God said, I want you to get under the cloud, and I'll take the heat off of you. I want you to get under my cloud, and I'll give you some relief from the things of this world. And when I move my cloud, I want you to continue to walk with me, and I'll continue to give you some relief. Sometimes they did that. Sometimes they didn't. God has said to you, and he has said to me, I want to be your Lord. I want to be the Lord of your life daily. I want you to walk with me and let me break ground for you, and I will take you where you need to go. And if you'll stay under my protective wings, I'll give you relief, and I'll take care of you. Isn't that a beautiful image? Next time you're outside and you see one of those beautiful cumulus nimbus clouds, remember, God has said, I want you under my cloud, and I will take care of you, so don't fret. 
Paul is, is trying to get the Philippian church, and he's trying to get you and I to press on and to realize God is in this with us. Just as he brought fog on the East River to protect people moving across the river, he's doing the same thing with us and has promised to do that. If you look down at 17 through 21, he talks about our home being in heaven. I don't know how many folks think about that on a daily basis. Most of us wonder what's going to happen to the stock market. Or we're worried about a job. Or we're worried about family. Or we're worried about getting some more stuff that we want. And I hear Paul saying, don't get caught up in that. Know that that's a dead-end street. Instead, set your focus on heaven. And he does it in an interesting way. He says, I want you to follow my example. This is not an egotistical man who's saying, I've got it all put together. He says, I want you to follow my example, and I want you to follow the example of other people. And what he's saying is, I want you to look around, and I want you to discern those who have the intimate relationship. And I want you to look at the way they're living their life and compare it to Scripture. And I want you to adorn yourself with those things that will help you have the same experience that they're having. I was sitting at dinner last night, Linda and I and two other couples from our church, and I had the occasion to talk about my spiritual daddy. I watch my spiritual daddy. Folks, I'm not a kid. I know you hadn't noticed that, but I'm not a kid anymore. So to have a spiritual daddy, he's got to be pretty old. And mine is. And he's one of the most beautiful men I've ever seen. And I have learned from him. I sit at his feet. I want to learn from him. He walks with the Lord in a beautiful way. He has not arrived. He is much more mature than I am, and I know that. Look for somebody who's more mature than you are spiritually and attach yourself to them in the sense that you look in your Bible and you look at their life and you say, what is it they're doing that is causing them to get closer to God? And those things that are transferable, you transfer them and take them on yourself. Paul says, I want to be an example. Come follow me. And again, there's no self in that. There's no ego in that. It's all about Jesus. In the very next breath, he gives a warning. He says, I don't only want you to be discerning about the good guys. I want you to be discerning about the bad guys. There's some people, and don't you think he's not talking about in the church and out of the church in Philippi, there are some people who look like they're walking with the Lord. But if you look carefully, you'll see there's some characteristics. It's all about them. It's a pride issue. They're trying, Paul uses the word, to get glory for themselves. It's all about their appetite and about the things that they have a passion for. And when you look carefully, 
some of those things they have a passion for are not of the Lord. It's about focusing on earthly things. And if you look at some of those folks, their focus is uniquely upon things here that they want to have and not things related to the Lord. Paul says they're in for destruction. And if you and I follow those kinds of folks and we take on some of their characteristics, we're in trouble. So Paul is saying, in essence, God has given us the ability to discern those that we ought to follow and those that we should not follow. You know what makes us follow people that we shouldn't follow? The desires of our own heart. We attach ourselves to people that can, in one way or another, deliver for us something we put a high value on. And we forget only God can do that, not a person. We need to be mature, we need to be discerning. What is at stake isn't our salvation, for our salvation is secure in the Lord Jesus and His blood. What's at stake is the process of sanctification. And Paul is saying, I want you to be discerning so you can continue to grow in your holiness. And if you take one of these rabbit trails, that's going to thwart it, maybe even stop it. I love the way he ends this thought. He says, hey folks, your destiny's in heaven. You all did know that, didn't you? That's, that's the ultimate destiny. We're going to heaven. How do we get there? He says it in another really neat way. He said, there's a power that is resident in God that he has bestowed on his son Jesus. And Jesus is over all things. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take these imperfect people and he's going to make us perfect through his shed blood. And he's going to take us to heaven. And we're going to live in that perfection. Nothing we have gained, nothing we've achieved, all done by the grace of God. Do you understand that? It's not all about right now. And we need individually to stop buying into it's all about now. A secular humanistic society has no hope for eternal life. They only look at the here and the now. Please yourself today because then it's over. And folks, that ain't true. That is absolutely not true. And when a person dies... It's too late to say, "Mm, I got that wrong. It's now. What I hear Paul saying to us is I want all of you who are God's children, knowing your eternal salvation is absolutely safeguarded. I want you between now and the moment you enter heaven, I want you to press on. And I want you to be holier, more conformed to the image 
of Jesus. You got it? Let's pray together. Father, it is not surprising that you know us so well. You know how easy it is for us, Lord, to get attracted to the wrong things, to the wrong people. You know, dear God, that oftentimes we get discouraged. And you're telling us not to be discouraged, but to press on. And to let you manage this thing we call our life. Thank you for loving us so much that you encourage us to press on. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I told my wife coming to church this morning, I do not like having congregational meetings after worship. I I want us to go home with the word embedded in our heart. And we're about to get distracted by some important things that we need to do. So I've been considering maybe just preaching this sermon over again at the end of the congregation. I'd like to call our meeting to order. If you would like to stay and you're not a member, we invite you to. We've got a couple of interesting things that we need to get resolved this morning. Those of you who have children in our nursery system, please retrieve your children. I'd like to call Harold Parker to come up and have our opening prayer. Thank you, Harold. The first order of business is for us to elect a clerk. Do I have a nomination? Do we have a second to elect Al? Are there other nominations? If there are no other nominations, by common consent, we will agree. And Al, you've been recruited. If you'd come forward, sir. If you would, declare a quorum present. If 